Hello, my name is Mike Diedrich, and I'm here with Michael McPherson. We're both members of Veterans for Peace, Chapter 92 in Seattle. And this is the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour broadcast on KODX 96.9 FM. Um, Veterans for Peace is an organization that we, our statement of purpose is we have indutifully served our nation to hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others towards increasing public awareness of the costs of war to restrain our governments from intervening overtly and covertly in the eternal affairs of other nations, to end the arms race and to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. To achieve these goals, members of Veterans for Peace pledge to use nonviolent means to and to maintain an organization that is both democratic and open with the understanding that all members are trusted to act in the best interest of the group for the larger purpose of world peace. We urge all people who share this vision to join us. Uh, today, this uh, program will be including a, uh, some, an interview with Jeff Patterson and a discussion of the Gulf War the first Gulf, the Persian Gulf War, Gulf War One. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. Um, so just want to say before we get started that the radio show, um, our show airs and streams every fourth Wednesday of the month from 6 to 7 p.m. Um, Pacific time on KODX 96.9. Um, most of you won't be able to um actually hear it on the radio so you can stream it from their website that's kodxseattle.org um, and if you want to find uh, archives of our radio show um, you can go to that same website slash seattle vfp i uh, am a veteran of the first gulf war um, that war actually started this month um, august 1990 30 years ago I was actually in the um, desert at the time in um, Fort Orrin, California, training. Um, I was in the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division. Um, and when we came out of the desert, when I say came out of the desert, came out of the training area back to the, to the base itself, or, or the main part of the base, that's when we found out that Saddam had um, amassed troops along the Kuwaiti border. And I was pretty clear that the United States was going to take action if he actually invaded. It was not a question in my mind because um, the U.S. had, the US had um, taken action in that region in the Persian Gulf to so-called to keep the, the waterway open for, uh, for the oil to get to the rest of the world and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so I wasn't surprised that once he invaded that um, – invaded Kuwait that, that the U.S. said that we were going to take action. Actually, at the time, I was married to a woman who grew up in Kuwait, um, her and her um, brother and sister, and her mother was still in Kuwait um, when Saddam invaded. So I actually had some personal um, interest in what was happening in that part of the world. And there's other things I could tell you that was going on during that time. I mean, like, there was a, a briefing we received about Iraq and Saddam Hussein probably a month before any of this happened. Um, there had been a 
I don't think it was Newsweek. I can't remember what, you know, there were like three papers back then. I mean, uh, magazines, Time, Newsweek, and another one. I can't remember what it is. One of them had uh, Saddam Hussein picture on it and said the most dangerous man in the world. Um, and I had talked to my wife one day. I looked at, after I read that um, article, I looked at where Kuwait was, which I had done before, but I was looking at it differently on the Persian Gulf and where Iraq was. And I saw that Iraq only had a little bit of land um, that gave them access to the Gulf and the rest of the space was Kuwait. And I told my wife, if I was Saddam Hussein, if I thought I could get away with it, I'd take this, I'd invade Kuwait and, and get all this uh, access to the Persian Gulf. So it wasn't, I mean, here I am at the time a Lieutenant in Savannah, Georgia thinking of, Thinking, or I was in Hinesville, Georgia, thinking about that. It, it certainly Saddam had thought about it. So, so this was something I think people should have been able to see coming if Michael McPherson could see it coming. Um, Mike, you you sent me an article about uh, peace protests during that time. Yeah, the. Um it's easy to forget recent history, and especially with Americans who've got a very short attention span. But uh, the protests uh, against the war in, in the Gulf, the first Gulf War, were extensive in the United States, well over a million, a million and a half people nationally. In 75,000 were in D, uh, Washington, D.C. alone, uh, including a lot of veterans and uh, veteran supporters. The, uh, you know, the sort of the one of the one of the chants was no blood for oil and uh, bring our troops home now. Um, there were a lot of a lot of young people involved in it. Um, well, I didn't know, you know anything about anything about any protest. Well, yeah, when you were in, I, yeah. I bet not. Well, you know, one of the things that the mil the only thing the mil military learned from Vietnam was that you don't allow. You control the media and don't let the media. In, uh, I mean, there weren't any media involved in uh, in uh, the Gulf except as under uh, military supervision. So they right. didn't want anybody. They they wanted to control the narrative. You know, one of the things I I, I like this a uh, uh, I quoted Kelly Wolf in this article. She was 16, a high school junior from Richmond, Virginia. Marsh with a, with her father was a corporate lawyer. He says. A lot of my friends say protesting doesn't do any good, she said. I said, ask Dr. Martin Luther King that. Mm. An appropriate remark for... Right. Uh, right. You know, there was counter-protesters, you know, screaming, USA, USA. And one of the things that came out of the protests were that um, people who were protesting were d uh, described as traitors or, you know... Uh, right. Uh, not true at all, of course. Yeah. Um, the um, there were multiple organizations, including uh, the uh, positions against uh, nuclear weapons and that sort of thing. But the uh, uh, aftermath of the war, the war was started with with uh, with uh, politics, Middle East politics, with the Iraqis and the Kuwait. The United States had no problem with intervening with. Uh, uh, Middle East politics when it supported uh, Iraq against Iran in that war, right. and we said, which left hundreds of thousands of people dead. Um, the um, 
whatever the reasons, the United States, when they bombed first, the first bombing part of the war left 3,000 civilians dead. Mm-hmm. And the subsequent embargo and uh, destruction of infrastructure, which destroyed sewage systems and water purification systems, uh, according to UNICEF, the United Nations organization left a half a million children dead because of these sanctions and the destruction of infrastructure. Right. And I know that you mentioned earlier that was one of the things that was your wake-up call to what really happened there, uh, right. and led you to uh, led to some of your awareness about what was happening in the Gulf. That's right. I saw a sign. I was in New York City. Um, I worked for an organization called the National Conference for Community and Justice, but I was actually going to a World of Difference um, Anti-Defamation League training. World of Difference is it's, uh, it's a program that the ADL has that tries to combat all, all forms of bias and bigotry. And I was going to a training and someone had a sign up that's, that talked about the 500,000 uh, deaths because of the sanctions. And I know there's some controversy as to whether or not that number is accurate, um, but whether or not it is, um, we do know thousands of people died um, as a result of the sanctions for sure. And it made me think about um, what responsibility I had in that. And really, when you go back and look at the war, um, I see the, the first Gulf War as the first ground campaign and air campaign of US current wars in the Middle East and around the world. Because since then, the United States has not stopped military operations in and around Iraq. It's continued from that time to today, and it just expanded um, to to, um, various other areas. And when you look at how the war got started, um, and yes, there were politics, uh, Arab politics between Kuwait and um, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, et cetera, Um, But it might not have led to war if the United States had made it clear that it would have not only frowned upon it and said, you know, some kind of uh, verbal, um, um, something verbal about it, it would have actually gotten involved um, militarily. But if you remember, there's a uh, April Glaspie, who was the ambassador to Iraq from the United States, um, told Saddam saying that, this that the United States, and I don't have her exact words, but she said something like, the United States doesn't have any interest in this um, this conflict. This is between Arabs. And Saddam took that to mean that, like I said, that the U.S. wouldn't do anything other than some kind of verbal um, admit, um, admonishment as opposed to actually getting involved. And Saddam, when you look at all of it, Saddam really had is a series of miscalculations on his part, um, but the United States helped move those miscalculations along, you know, um, for for its own interest. And the last thing I want to say ab- about that is, if you look at U.S. wars um, in Afghanistan and the Middle East today, they are more a result of U.S. foreign policy failures. Even if if you agree with where the U.S. wants to go with those policies, and I don't, in terms of expanding its influence and controlling things in the, in the region. Even if you agree with those things, um, U.S. actions have only led to failures. U.S. actions have led to the U.S., in order to have any kind of influence in these regions, having to use military force 
instead of using other means to have influence. These have been, they have been very foolish and, and just not caring about human life decisions to, to get where we are today, including the um, ISIL, which some people call ISIS. ISIL in Iraq is a result of US foreign policy failures. So we just right. need to get out of these regions and from the outside, help people put their countries back together. That would be the best thing for us to do. Well, it's clearly, you're right. Clearly, the United States foreign policy has been used military solutions to essentially political uh, problems. And that was, that's been bolstered by the fact the United States has got this huge infrastructure that built in Saudi Arabia is basically a forward base stocked with equipment and uh, supplies for any sort of future conflicts that it seem that it decides it wants to get involved with in, right. the, in the Gulf, and uh, you know the, the Hussein Saddam Hussein was was a paper tiger. He had a large large army of draftees. He had equipment that was outmoded. It was absolutely no match for right. American complete air superiority or, for that matter, American artillery and and modern tanks right and it was ended up being actually a turkey shoot and one of those turkey shoots was the highway of death when the iraqis were retreating from kuwait united states uh forces blocked their escape and it and it just butchered them on the on the highway there yeah that was my How division actually it did yeah 24 yeah. so i mean that was the paper tiger and that was the excuse to use it that this was a much more threat than it was it was a uh third-rate army, large third-rate army, but no match for American uh, equipment and right. uh, forces. Right. So, uh, you know, the same could be said for the, actually, the uh, the Iraq invasion, which, you know, uh, pretext for that was the WMDs, which was not there. They, they right. knew they were not there. Yeah. And then even going further, Afghanistan, where it was a, it was a fairly justifiable thing to go and bomb the training camps that they knew were, uh, some of these Al Qaeda um, uh, operatives uh, trained for the attack on the uh, World Trade Center, but that doesn't mean that you have to invade a country to uh, right. follow up with that. Which is we've been there for twenty years now. Right. So um, and again, U.S. foreign policy um, trying to uh, hurt um, Russia, which at the time was the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, working with. Um, the Mujahideen and elements of people who eventually became Al Qaeda. So, so again, the U.S. choosing violence um, and and trying to um, organize people using religion um, has led to that that group of people that they helped organize against the Soviet Union at the time looked and said, "Well, we've defeated the Soviets." we're not going to let you come in here and control things. So that's a foreign policy failure, right? The, right. the Gulf War, um, putting all those uh, tanks in the forward base, as you said, in Saudi Arabia, um, Osama bin Laden talked about that in terms of September 11 and, and wanting yeah. the U.S. to get out of Saudi Arabia was one of the reasons September 11 happened. So again, a U.S. policy failure. I mean, you could, if you look at, I just have to say, people, if you look at what the U.S. has done, the United States has caused most of the problems that it has when, it's what, when, when you look at what's going on around the world. We have caused our own problems. 
but you know, the and they also don't care because they're not sending their children. Yeah. And they've also framed the discussion as, as in, you know, terrorists and Muslim extremists and that sort of thing. Recent study that interviewed as many uh, uh, Middle Easterners and said that you know, most of the reasons that Middle Easterners from various stripes oppose American and other European presence in the Gulf is because of nationalism. And of mm -hmm. course, this goes back to the, the Crusades where yes. American... Uh, not American, but European yeah. crusaders tried to take over part of a, out right. of a, what was then Palestine. Yeah, and you know that that history doesn't go away. That's right. They know what they know what the you know what their own history is, and they regard this um, current American and Allied interventions in the Gulf as exactly the same content. It's not right. necessarily a religious one, although that's a part of the flavor. Right. It's that's just right. Simple sort of reaction against. Uh, foreign intervention in imperialism. Right, which is, I thought, one of the reasons this country was founded because we said we wanted to control our destiny as opposed to somebody several thousand miles away. So now here we are trying to do the exact same thing. You know, the hypocrisy is 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 um, breathtaking. But yeah, I that, think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Roger. No, I was just going to say we better get get to our, our guest or we won't okay. have enough time for the show. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so you wanted to say one last thing and then we'll go ahead and get to Jeff. No, I mean, just to follow up, says we've thrown that sort of non-interventionist foreign policy out the window. That is no longer a part of, it's always, you know, how, how, how do we intervene militarily? Not how, how do we intervene diplomatically? That's right. That's right. All right. So we're going to go ahead and get to our, um, our guest, Jeff Patterson, who actually was a resistor, um, during the Gulf War. Um, he was the first person to resist at that time, and he has an amazing story. Um, so here we go. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for uh, joining us on our VFP Chapter 92 radio show. Well, Michael, thanks for having me. It's an honor. I've, I've, uh, I've uh, appreciated your work with Veterans for Peace. And, uh, yeah. Whatever you want, man. I'm here. <laughs> well, I just was thinking about how long we've known each other. And what I remember is meeting you at the Veterans for Peace convention in um, San Francisco. I think that was in 2004 three or four. And uh, I remember distinctly David Klein and you and I and a bunch of other people were in a hotel room, you know, cause it was after, you know, how after the, the day, the nights after stuff happens during the day, we're sitting around drinking and talking and stuff. All right. And the, I believe, that, that, that was St. Louis though, but go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty, you didn't, were you at the one in the, that hotel room, the hotel room in St. Louis, and it was a uh, United for Peace oh, and Justice. Uh, really? Okay, I'm all yeah, convention, right? So, okay. anyways, all right, you could be uh, right if you want. 2005. Though. That was 2005. All right. Okay. All right. And you were standing on, um, you were standing on a dresser. <laughs> yeah, there's a tequila or or something going on. Um, but you know, I, I just remember that time, like uh, you know, the U.S. is going back to war again. 
in, in yeah. Iraq and yeah and we were just uh you know on the streets and protesting and yeah and I, I remember that night as a chance to I kind of let let loose a little bit yeah. <laughs> and yeah. have some fun that's right while, while the empire burns I guess well, it was great. It's great knowing you all this time and all the great work you've done. And both of us uh, have an intersection with the Gulf War. Um, you were actually a resistor. And I, was, and I didn't even think about resisting at the time. But, um, but before we get into that, can you tell us what led you to join the military? And why did you pick the Marines? Uh, I don't know. It wasn't that hard. Uh... Both my both my parents worked in a factory. We were in a small town um, in Central California, um, and they split up. And I was living with my mom, and she was working her working her butt off. And I, she didn't like kick me out of the house, but at the same time, I knew life would be easier. She didn't have to keep feeding me, oh. and uh, our car was broken. So like my whole plan was to go to the community college, but it was like twenty miles away right on this and there's no public transit so i was kind of at an impasse and my my buddy joined the marines and he's like hey come with me free hot dogs right and we were always going wherever there was free food in town you know me and my buddies were there so hot dogs that was not unusual and the marines are like oh what's your plan i'm like you know i, I really don't have a plan and they're like, I we I got a plan for you, we got we got all kinds of plans for you, right? And so I guess that was it. Um, life was very challenging um, for me and my family, and the Marine Corps seemed like a way to uh, avoid a very monotonous job at uh, fast food or whatever. Um, if, you know, if I could even get a, a job in the fast food <laughs> industry in town. <laughs> um, so it was, it seemed like the answer of uh, getting out of town, seeing the world. I had never really uh, left California before then. Um, so, and I was, you know, I was sort of heavy metal punk and I had this like feeling that uh, the U S and the Soviet Union at the time were headed towards like some kind of a Armageddon, uh, of a nuclear annihilation. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wanted to be on the front lines of, of, of the apocalypse. I didn't want to be just at home, you know, and then there's a mushroom cloud. I wanted to like a front row seat, I guess is, is what I was thinking. Really? That makes sense. Yeah, it, it kind of does. I mean, but you know, <laughs> when you're, when you're a kid. Well, yeah, I was, I was 17. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so. I'm yeah. not sure it did make sense or not, but yeah, um, I knew that I, could, I didn't want to stay on the farm. I, I hated, I was allergic to hay. Um, mm. I hated, I hated the goats. I was, um, I had to raise my family goat farm. I hated that. Right. And I had to get away. And the Marine Corps was, was my ticket. Right. And unfortunately that story continues today um, in different ways be it a urban story or the rural story or whatever the case may be, child abuse, whatever. Um, people trying to find themselves and get away from something, become a man, become a woman. Yeah. And story. It, but the context, you know, it's easy to look back and like, oh, Jeff, you're, you're an idiot. But 
I was 17 or 18. I, nobody, you know, I, I went to high school. I learned history, you know, which ended at world war two, <laughs> right. you know, and, right. and I had no, I had no reason or uh, to question any kind of foreign policy or look at, or look at, you know, the U S special role in the world in any kind of critical way at all. It just, it just never, just never occurred to me, I guess. Right. So, well, that changed, didn't it? Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that goes to the question, tell us about your Gulf war resistance because it, it apparently at some point you did start to question and put some things together. Uh, sure. You know, I was, I joined 86. I was in, I signed up for four years. I did four years. Um, and in those four years, as I, uh, stationed in uh, Okinawa and uh, the Philippines, uh, South Korea, the DMZ. Um, I just became disillusioned with what I saw. Mm. I, I saw, uh, I really saw us as protectors of democracy. And in, in fact, I saw us as being uh, abusive uh, towards our quote unquote hosts. Um, I had, I felt uneasy, you know, when people uh, use very derogatory uh, terms to the, to the Japanese people and the Filipino people and the Koreans. And it didn't sit well with me, I, I guess. And then as and I realized I didn't really want to kill people either. I, you know, at the rifle range, you know, sure, I could, I could shoot things. But there was always this thing, obviously, in the Marine Corps, right? You're seeing about, you know, uh, murdering and killing and, and having sex with uh, dead bodies and whatnot as you're running around, right? Um, as, uh, and then... Wait, wait a minute. You're saying having sex with dead bodies? I don't, I don't know anything about that. Well, you if, know, if I was in the Marine, maybe I would know something about that, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, you're like running in the morning with the PT, right? Yeah. And you're like, one, two, three, you know, I'm going to get there. We're gonna, you know, I was never very good at rhyming. Uh, <laughs> right. But it was all about, you know, kill, 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 yes, yes. stab, cut right. off their heads. You know, right. uh, uh, basically, you know, mama-san, papa-san, we kill papa-san. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we have sex with Mama San's uh, skull, kind wow. of stuff. Okay. Um, okay. So you know that I don't know, and I've I've gone back and, and listened to the, the official Marine Corps chants, and they're not there. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, everybody was free to like sure. you know make up their own rhymes, and people who made up the most gruesome, brutal rhymes, everybody thought those are the best. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Like, yeah. Right. Nobody ever said, "Oh, that's." I find that offensive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So. Right. Anyways, all I can say is, you know, I'm, I remember going to Korea. And I'm like, oh, Korea is cool. A new country. The very first thing we do in Korea, my the commanding officer runs down on like, what's the official uh, pay rate for prostitutes in town? And he's like, if you pay 25 bucks, I'm going to kick your ass because you're messing up the economy for the rest of us. And, wow. uh, you know, kind of thing. Wow. Um, so I don't know. So that's, and yet it's still, I didn't have a political context. Um, so I did like three years of that. I get to Hawaii to do my last 12 months. 
and start going to, uh, I start taking classes at the University of Hawaii. I meet some activists who are involved in, uh, I don't remember, the, it's like Justice for Nicaragua or something. The, the Sandinistas and the FMLN were fighting uh, pretty pitched battles around that time, 88, 89. And, you know, and I told them my stories and, and they hooked me up with like this, like, oh, I'll read this book, Howard's in History of the United States mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and other books. But I read this, the History of the United States and like, wow, this is, that was, it blew my mind. I started right. looking at what I was doing and what I had done and seen in a, in a kind of a comprehensive uh, context of uh, an alternative version, I guess. And it made sense to me. It, it, uh, and it resonated. And well, yeah. Maybe you say alternative version, let's say a fuller picture. <laughs> this alternative <laughs> stuff, you know how that's being yeah. used today. So I'm going to say a fuller, a fuller picture with more information. Well, it was, it was alternative to me in that it was so different than anything I'd ever read or was yeah. taught. Uh, sure. sure. It just, uh, you know, to, to, to ponder on the plight of the Native Americans versus the heroic uh, settlers who overcame adversity. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, well that, made, that made sense. Right. Um, so anyways, that was the context. And I met these activists. Um, and I was doing the first, the, the last weeks of my four-year enlistment. And I have, um, I have a date to go home. In a, in a few weeks after my four years, I'm like, Ooh, close call. I didn't have to murder anybody. Yeah. Um, and I remember it was like, all right, the last year I was worried about, are we going to deploy to uh, Nicaragua or El Salvador to uh, save one of the dictatorships from a communist uh, rebellion or overthrow? And I was like template contemplating. He's like, I, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of side more with these, these farmers or whatever against this bully which I, I saw myself as the bully at that point, as far as like the United States. And, and that was my concern is like, well, maybe I'll just disappear, go to Canada or something or whatever. Mm. So, I, so I was sort of thinking about that right. in that context. Um, so again, that, you know, it's like you went to Iraq and in, or um, I just want to underscore like 99 out of a hundred times, I would have just done the same thing. Like I, I followed orders every day of my life for four years. And yeah, I known these guys in my unit, most of them I knew them for three years. It just, we all kind of came up and was in this one unit together. Um, so when we were ordered to uh, uh, go to Kuwait and, you know, invade Iraq and, or, you know, you know, my gut instinct was, all right, oh, this is going to suck, <laughs> you know, and it's right. going to suck for me. It's going to, um, but my first instinct was, all right, I got, it. you know, whatever. I never thought about not doing it. Um, but the more it weighed on me, you know, as, uh, you know, I remember like August 2nd or 3rd, or Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, and then you know, we're packing our bags. Are we going to go? Aren't we going to go? And there was a peace process and all this stuff. But it really seemed to me that we were going to war, and I had to grapple with that. Um, you know, and that played out over a bunch of days. And But finally... Uh, finally, as about a week into that, uh, my commanding officer, we got together with our unit. It's like, all right, we're going to do it. We're doing this, packing our bags. This is real this time. And uh, I was the 
we were an artillery unit. I was the, the fire direction uh, controlman. And I was the only one at that time in my unit that was qualified to operate the, the nuclear uh, warheads for artillery. Wow. So the, the battlefield uh, rocket assisted uh, 198 millimeter tactical nuclear warheads. Um, so you had so, like a, a, a secret top secret clearance or something like that too. Yeah. It was, I don't know if it was top secret. Yeah. And then, um, so the commanding officer, you know, as part of this like football rally kind of things, like, you know, if anything goes wrong over there, Corporal Patterson, he's going to whip out the silver bullet. We're going to nuke those ragheads. Mm. Right. Yeah. And then how I perceived that moment was, like the 150 odd people in my unit just jumping up, dancing and joy of, of jubilation <laughs> of being so excited to do that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just stunned. And I'm like, and I think I'm have a tear in my eye or something. You know, that's not something you're supposed to do in the record, <laughs> right. but the whole, uh, the weight of it, I guess, sort of fell on me. You know, the, the enormity of like, Oh, um, if I'm over there, I can't, you know, I always thought maybe, well, I could just pretend to shoot people or I could like fire and like, you know, intentionally miss somebody. Yeah. But if I'm, you know, uh, pulling out a nuclear weapon, there's no way to like intentionally miss right. in that right. context. Right. And it wasn't that I thought this, this was going to happen. Uh, I thought it was a very 1%, 2%, you know, whatever, 3% chance. But I thought it was like, uh, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to get in a car and I think there's a 3% chance I'm going to die on the way to the supermarket, right? I'm like, well, maybe I don't take that car, right? Right. <laughs> so, and then I'm like, well, if I'm going to, if they order, if they actually order me to do that, I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to say no, right? But then... I'm like, all right, but then I'm I'm humping around my uh, 50 caliber machine gun for our fire team or something. How about if they, what's, you know, once I start, once I decide that like, no, I'm not going to put together a nuclear bomb for mm. or something, mm. I'm like, well, then maybe I shouldn't fire my machine gun. Maybe I shouldn't even fire my M16. So anyways, that was a, a cascade of, uh, of doubt and, and conscience or whatever. And that's, um, that sort of led me to, that basically led me to the point where I, I held a, a little press conference in Hawaii and, and said that um, I would refuse to go if they ordered me to go. So. Right, right. And this was with, a, what, a month of ATS? Um, yeah, it was, it, was about, it was 30 days or so. My, my best friend, we had been in for three years together, and we – basically had the same ETS, but he had a, he had a couple of weeks early on his uh, orders and I took him to the airport. He went home. I, and then I believe the next day they, they stop lost us and, and oh, okay. told me I wasn't uh, going home. Um, so yeah, you know, that was part of it too. And mentally I was checked out of the Marine Corps. Mentally I was like, I, I did my time. I survived no harm, no foul kind of thing. Um, so this was kind of shocking, I guess, the whole stop loss and you're going over there and then uh, you're going to 
potentially, you know, uh, be part of a, a nuclear holocaust in the Middle East type of thing. And that's that's what I opted out of. I knew that they uh, stopped lost a lot of soldiers in the second war, but I didn't know that they did that with the first war. Uh, yeah, well, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, it was it was a pretty. Well, I'm not they didn't stop loss hundreds hundreds of thousands, but they stopped loss tens of thousands. Um, it was it was a big deal because it hadn't it hadn't happened you know previously uh, since the ever since the Vietnam War or whatever in post Vietnam context. Uh, so it was it was shocking. It wasn't something any of us really thought about. Obviously, you sign a contract for eight years and it's in the back of your mind, but you know, if decades go by and it doesn't happen, then you don't, you know, think about it. You know, there's plenty of stuff in the military contract that, you know, you'd rather not think about as what they could do to you if they, if they want to do to you kind of thing. Right. Um, so yeah, I held a press conference and the military was really pissed off at me because I was talking to the press and uh, they, they, you know, went, they yelled at me a lot. They uh, opened the UCMJ. They picked out like 12 different things I allegedly violated. They told me I was going to prison for a long time and, and all this stuff. And then they're like, well, or you can just go with us and everything will be fine. And we'll forget, <laughs> we'll forget all that. Uh, just so, you know, I was, I was, there was some media about my case. It was in Honolulu at the time. Um, so that was the context. I refused that. Uh, they told me that they were going to uh, basically come snatch me up and put me on the plane anyways. Mm. Um, so I should just, you know, quit yabbering on about peacenik stuff. Um, I assumed that that was going to happen because mm -hmm. uh, uh, my command were not nice people. Uh, they certainly weren't nice to me anymore. Um, so I uh, went on a hunger strike. I refused to eat. Um, mm. And... When they did finally order me on the plane, I hadn't eaten for a, a week or so. And I had, I was still like running, you know, five, 10 miles a day in, in mop suit care stuff. Wow. So I, I lost a lot of weight and people thought I was a mental or a, a cancer patient. <laughs> wow. So when I, um, when they drew it, when they uh, dragged me out uh, to the, the airstrip in Kanye Bay Marine Corps Air Station, uh, and they pointed at the plane and said, get on the plane. And I, for lack of a plan, just sat down and uh, the 300 odd people uh, walked by me one by one. And, and some of them, you know, called, called me uh, bad names and some of them offered uh, their personal encouragement because they were friends of mine. Um, but uh, because I had, uh, because I was sort of a health issue at that point, uh, they, they opted not to actually at the end of that night, pick me up and, and throw me on the plane. So they, they, they threatened to hunt me down later and, and murder me. Uh, but, uh, they did not put me on the plane. Wow. Wow. Well, that's, that's a hell of a story. Um, I think about myself, Well, one thing in my unit, um, there were at least one officer when you talk about stop loss, um, a lieutenant um, who was able to get out for some reason. And he, he, um, he didn't, he didn't have any political reason for it. <laughs> um, and I have to be honest with you, cause I wasn't thinking, I mean, I can't say that I didn't have any political analysis cause I had some, 
but um, whatever it was, it was overridden by this belief in, okay, I'm in the military and I'm supposed to not just follow orders, but I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do for my country or something like that. I didn't have enough sense to understand the full ramifications of what I was doing. Um, so I was kind of upset at, at this person for leaving um, because I felt like he was abandoning us. I wasn't real mad at him, but I had some feeling of disappointment. There was another guy who could have got out who chose not to. And it's interesting too, because this officer was uh, a West Point graduate. And I had been, I was in the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division Artillery as well. I had been, um, Hoorah. yeah, <laughs> I had been with him, you know, one of, one of the guys for a few years. And he was one of like the teacher's pet guys, you know, because he was a West Point graduate. There were like three other West Point graduates in all the upper, the, the higher up officers love these guys. And then he ends up leaving. So it was like, oh, okay, you know, um, but um I, I think, and I'm pretty sure that I would have had no animosity towards a person who made that decision for a political reason and articulated it and was paying the price for it, you know, because that means you believe in it. And the reason I believe that about myself, I could be making that up, you know, this is how many years later, 30 years, um, is because I did know about the Vietnam War, that we should never have been there. You know, there were some things I understood and being a black person, I certainly understood, understood that our country wasn't always doing the right thing, you know, but to kind of leave just because you can after you've been with us all this time, that kind of just didn't sit right with me. Yeah. Um, did you have any other question you wanted to ask Mike before we? Well, um, so what happened after you sat down? <laughs> um, you know, it was, you know, again, like people uh, walked by me and they, uh, uh, they were mad or they're angry or, or supportive on a personal level. And this is uh, backing up, backing up 45 minutes or so. Uh, you know, they had me in a, uh, in a room in our barracks and, you know, the time came uh, to take us to the, to the airstrip on base there. And they paraded me out, you know, saying, all right, you know, say goodbye to Corporal Patterson. He's been yabbering on the TV now and talking about he's not going, but here he is, he's going to kind of show everybody, you know, there's no point in, in questioning orders or whatnot. And they, you know, paraded me under these balconies. There are like, you know, three levels of people, all my, my unit there. And some people, um, you know, started uh, chanting, uh, you know, kill them all, kill, kill, kill. And other people started chanting peace, 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 just to probably <laughs> fuck, fuck with the people chanting kill, right? <laughs> and then uh, a couple guys, I guess, spit on me because I, I felt like, spit, you know, spit coming down my face there. Oh. And then, uh, but my uh, CO and my gunny sergeant were holding me. And then I realized that uh, other people were taking the opportunity to spit on the CO and the, and the gunny sergeant. <laughs> so you got, you got like a hundred Marines chanting kill and a hundred Marines chanting peace. And you got people spitting on me. You got people spitting on the, the CO who's leading these guys into war and the proudest day of his career is coming up. <laughs> and that was just like such a, a surreal moment. Um, it kind of summed up uh, all that. And, 
Um, anyways, so, you know, I went to the airstrip, didn't get on the plane. They took me to the Pearl Harbor brig. I sat in the brig for uh, a month uh, and uh, I got, you know, I got released uh, pending my court martial. And I, I was facing, you know, the whole missing movement stuff. And because I had a secret clearance, they were going to charge me with uh, giving away classified information to the enemy because apparently Saddam Hussein didn't know Marines were deploying. Oh, my goodness. Until I said that I was <laughs> refusing to deploy, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it adds up to like five or ten years or whatnot. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm going to do two or three, you know, I had a good lawyer, <laughs> you know, and, um, but the Marine Corps, uh, halfway through my court martial, they decided that I was a distraction because they were still preparing for the war in, uh, in early December and the war wouldn't start for another six weeks. And, and, uh, and protesters were at the base there at the County Marine Corps Air station and, so they told me to walk and I walked away. I pled guilty to being AWOL for two minutes. Um, and uh, I was, I had pled guilty to being AWOL for uh, one day because uh, I went to go see my attorney when they wouldn't let me talk to my attorney. <laughs> so, so, you know, some pretty nickel and dime stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, 30 years later, now we're talking. So. Yeah. So did you do you ever have any uh, of your former comrades or your former soldier mates or any other soldier who was in 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 uh, on the Gulf come and say, well, you know, maybe you did the right thing? Mm, good question. Um, I yeah, uh, you know, my best my best friend. He thought I did the right thing. He, he's he's you know he said he probably wouldn't have done it himself, <laughs> but but he thought I did the right thing. Um, and, uh, today I'm in touch with maybe five of those guys. Uh, they don't think I did the right thing. They did. They think I did the right thing for me. Um, and they're like, you know, we were, you know, some of them are like, well, we were just way better off without you. <laughs> and and that, I was trying to tell them from, I was trying to tell that to them from the start to tell you the truth <laughs> because you're like, Oh, there's a bad guy. Shoot him. And Corporal Patterson's like, no. <laughs> well, I found um, a, a December 5th um, article from the Washington Post uh, that says the Marine Corps yesterday dropped court martial proceedings against Corporal Jeff Patterson for refusing to be sent to Saudi Arabia and said he will be given a less than honorable discharge. Patterson, 22, of Hollister, California, whose unsuccessful bid for conscientious objector status drew national attention, said, we got over one hurdle. Now we've got to stop the war. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I mean, really. But, but tell us about, you know, your bid for conscientious objector status. And, you know. It was, it was weird. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what a conscientious objector was. Never heard of it. Uh, with the exception of... I remember seeing it from my recruiter. He's like, are you a communist? I'm like, no idea what a communist is, but no. So I'm not. <laughs> right? Are you a homosexual? I'm like, you know, my uncle's a homosexual. <laughs> I think one of my friends is, I think he's a good guy, but I'm personally not a homosexual. Right. So whatever. And he, he thought that was a little queer that I wouldn't just say no, but he let the slide. And he's like, are you kind of an objector? I, I no idea what the hell that is. So I'm not one of them. Oh, 
And in in artillery school at Fort Sill, I don't know if you went to Sill too. Yeah, I did. Yeah, there was a there was a training film we watched about. Uh, well, I guess it was a chemical warfare school, and they showed these World War II videos of these of these guys volunteering to be subjected to chemical agents and in real time they show their bodies blistering and pussing mm-hmm. up and they're like really and in the narrator as they fade out I was like oh these are conscious injectors serving america in a different kind of way and I was like, right like yeah. oh conscious injectors they're they're human guinea pigs <laughs> <laughs> nope not one of them <laughs> oh so anyways so i refused i went on tv i'm like i'm not gonna fight this war it's wrong. Uh, I'm not going to kill anybody. And then my attorney's like, you know, you should be a conscience ejector. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be, you're not going to do any scientific experiments on me. No way. Right. Just right. send me to prison. I'm going to skip that. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, you know, I learned how to and I looked at the things and was like, I was grappling with this question, Nicaragua and El Salvador, because I identified with those dudes down there fighting for what I saw against the American bullying them. I'm like, good on them for fighting back. Uh Um, Who am I to like say that that's wrong? I guess, you know, I was was sort of kind of grappling with that question of violence is always wrong or whatnot. And that's why I also, I didn't really think about the constant judgment. So anyways, the military decided that I was sincere in my conscience objection beliefs, but I was, quote, not sincere enough. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, and maybe they're right. I don't know. You know, who am I to question the, the wisdom of the Pentagon? Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, but what I'll tell you, what I'll tell you, though, is you know, like I, I do counseling for, with conscience objectors and right. I've helped many people get out. Not many, a dozen maybe, as conscience objectors. And usually that process takes six to 18 months. Mm. Uh, I submitted my uh, application for the first time on like August 16th. And I was denied by the Pentagon, which is the final resolution on August 29th, two weeks, (laughs) 14 days for an entire investigation. And uh, I I think that's a record. And uh, I'm proud. I'm proud of that. Right. Well, let me ask you, how do you, because one of the things, they always try to find ways to coerce you, a person, into staying, right? And, sure. and apparently, um, this thing with the conscientious objector in that, in that film was like a, a pre-coercion, you know, because it put that idea in your mind. I, you know, that's pretty amazing. They knew what they were doing. Sure. Um, but, but how did, how has the other than honorable discharge how has it impacted you if at all my son had a, a other than honorable discharge and i can't say it's impacted him that much more his post-traumatic stress has right. impacted him much more than um right his other than honorable and and he was able to get yeah. it upgraded so oh good good for him yeah. um i don't i don't know well one is uh I, you know, I paid the $1,200 into the GI bill at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was expecting to use some, uh, GI bill, GI bill money when I got out of the Marine Corps. And that was my plan to go to college. Right. So that was, uh, negated and they didn't refund my 1200 bucks I paid in that program. So that was annoying. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they changed that sense and that's good on them for improving that situation for other people. 
but so yeah, I didn't get to go to call, you know, I didn't get the, whatever the $10,000 that I was hoping to do. So I had to, you know, I had to take out loans and go to school. Yeah. And work it out. yeah. Um, I was hoping, uh, I applied for, a. Uh, a rent-a-cop job when I was going to school hoping right. to make some money just to pay the, the book tuitions and stuff. So, yeah. and the, the OTH disqualified, disqualified me from being a rent, a rent, a rent-a-cop okay. um, at the shopping mall. Okay. <laughs> but luckily that wasn't my career plan. So, right. Um, so I guess, much. I guess that's it. Yeah. You know, what I would tell people is it's, it's all, it's the military drives it into your mind that your life is over, you know, that, yep. you know, you are, you'll either succeed in the military and get out and you'll be successful in life or you'll fail here and you'll be a, a failure forever. Right. <laughs> and so much is, uh, you know, it's 90% internalized, mm-hmm. I guess. Right. Right. And, you know, and I got, a, I got a job in part, you know, just by telling you this, you know, I was at the university of San Francisco. Uh, and I told, you know, and somebody asked me about my military. I was like, Hey, this is what happened. And they're like, well, that's a cool story. We're definitely going to hire you. (laughs) You know? Okay. So, you know, hit and miss, right. I didn't, I didn't become a a rental cop job. Uh, you know, I was a, as a IT administrator for UCSF. So, Oh, that's good. So yeah, that's a big so, difference between you know, a cop and IT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it worked out. Um, so we only have a few minutes left. Yeah. Um, there was one last question I wanted to ask. Looking back with everything you know now, what do you think about the Gulf War and U.S. current wars? In what ways do you might see they're connected? And I hate that I ask, ask this question yeah, yeah. so late in the interview because, you know. Oh, 25 words or less. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, what I did changed my life and it put me in, in the life trajectory that was, was right for me. Yeah. Um, and before then I didn't know who I was or what I was going to be. And, uh, you know, taking a stand against the war clarified uh, that for me and it gave me a, a sort of life mission and the, the complete uh, cluster F show of everything that's happened since the U.S. Uh, went to, into Gulf War One, um, and then you know Afghanistan and, and Iraq and deposing Saddam Hussein, and uh, um, so I, I guess I just want to say that I was right all along. Yeah, and they, they were wrong, but obviously being right in our context and situation uh, doesn't even get you a cookie. Uh, so, <laughs> but it does, it does mean something to me in that, uh, I had a, a chance to do a one thing or the other, and I did the right thing at a certain point. And it's, uh, it's allowed me to, uh, look back and, and, uh, be appreciative of, of, of that moment. So, yeah. Well, Mike, do you have anything? Yeah. Else? Well, thanks for standing up. You know, it's not easy. Uh, I know that a lot of people who are in the military, one of the hardest things there is to do, especially if you don't go to a war, if you do go to the war, you refuse to go to war, is to look in the mirror and say, did I do the right thing? And it's it's a much harder thing to actually go to the war and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And regrets, uh, you know, you're right in saying that you, you know, it changed your life, but in probably a good way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe. It's 30 years. You know, what what happened there? Right. So. We're getting old, man. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you coming on to the show, Jeff. And um, I, I actually want to talk with you more. Um, if not here, uh, you some got my other, number. Other place. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you take care. All right. See you soon. Thank you, Jeff. Take care, Mike. That's the end of the show. But before we go, let me give credit where credit is due. Our theme music, Untouchable, and the transition music, Spanish Winter, are from the Passion Hi-Fi. You can find his music at thepassionhi-fi.com. That's the P-A-S-S-I-O-N Hi-Fi, H-I-F-I dot com. Thanks again to Gulf War Resistor and anti-war activist Jeff Patterson for joining us today. Tune in next time. The radio show airs and streams every fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. on KODX 96.9 FM Seattle. That's 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time. Or listen to a live stream at KODXSeattle.org. You can listen to our past episodes at KODXSeattle.org slash Seattle VFP. So until then, stay in the struggle, power to the people, and power to the peaceful.